Hey, my friend, welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My name is Lori Seitz. I'm an entrepreneur, mentor, founder of Zen Rabbit, and your instigator in saying fuck being fine. This show is for those of you who are done living with the dumpster fire and are ready to find the tools and courage to transform, to step into more success and fulfillment in both your personal and business life. You're in the right place for stories of self-discovery, gratitude, and connection. And to help you strengthen that connection to your own inner guidance, you'll find each episode has an accompanying meditation. Now let's get into it. My guest today is Dr. Liz Dubois. Our conversation covers a lot of ground. From being raised in a church that taught her who she is was not okay, to her quest to find a world with more diversity and acceptance. From the similarities between addicts and high achievers and how it's a combination of belief systems and brain chemistry driving them, to owning and investigating your pain instead of keeping it buried deep inside. For the past 14 years, Dr. Liz Dubois has worked with high performers, entrepreneurs, and C-suite executives to navigate interpersonal, professional, and business-related challenges. Using conflict analysis and resolution tools and her intuitive skills, she empowers her clients to address trauma, codependency, and self-worth issues so they can create world-changing companies. Hey, I launched the inaugural small group Fuck Being Fine program a couple weeks ago, and it's going really well. Here's an email I got from one of the participants before the first week was even finished. I am finding when I focus on the day's tasks, I'm not overwhelmed, and this brings confidence, peacefulness, and a sense of power over the day. I'm so proud of all of them for taking the time and making their well-being a priority. There's so much more to come during this eight-week program. If you're interested in radically increasing your productivity, energy, and happiness while staying calm and grounded no matter what, you can get in on the next group. It starts in a few weeks. Find out more at zenrabbit.com or text me at 571-317-1463. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My guest today is Dr. Liz Dubois. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Well, let's jump right in here and start with what were the, the, the values and beliefs that you were raised with that contributed to you becoming who you became as a young adult? Oh gosh. Um, you know, (laughs) um, I think that there's a couple of key ones that really informed who I became. I'm my, my parents are both really good people, kind people, um, good heads on their shoulders and raised me with, um, I want to say a keen eye towards just being a good person. Right. And especially my mom was really invested in building community. She's like the kind of person that can walk into the grocery store and walk out with a best friend. Um, there's just no one that is not a potential new person to be friends with. And I think that that really informed my worldview as far as a willingness to trust people um, an eagerness to know people, a desire to be part of a community, 
think that was a really um, foundational kind of mindset that set me up for where I am today and, and the things that I take part in. Um, but the the more pointed answer to that, I think, is that there were a lot of different um, values that I grew up with as a young adult that really informed who I didn't want to be. And I think that those things were just as fundamental, if not more so than the kind of, you know, squishy, you know, everyone, <laughs> everyone is someone to love. And, you know, there's no such thing as a stranger, just a friend you haven't met yet, things like that. Um, when I was um, eight, my mom and dad went through a divorce and my mom out of very good intentions brought us to a church and said, you know, this is kind of a place that we can find community and support. And I don't think that there was any abject religious overtone to her decision to do that. I really think it was, you know, this is a place where people who quite literally congregate and will be able to find warm hearted, open people that can be supportive within that church, however. Um, and, and this was not just within that church, but within kind of the broader culture of Christianity in the Midwest and the South. In this period of time, there was a kind of rampant movement called non-denominationalism. And even though the, this was a Methodist church that we were involved in, the youth leaders in the, the youth group were deeply entrenched in kind of Southern Baptist, born-again Christian values and culture. And I grew up surrounded by, um, you know, my, my youth group was really foundational. I was a very big nerd. <laughs> I didn't have a tremendous, you know, I didn't have a huge network. Well, weren't we all, though? <laughs> I mean, I really, you know, I was outspoken. I was very tall. I was chubby. I'm 5'11". I've been this tall since I was 12. Uh, you know, I, I just like it felt really awkward all the time. And my youth group was a safe haven for me. But it came with the price tag of being inculcated with a lot of values that were anti-LGBTQ, uh, anti-abortion, anti-women, anti-women's bodies, um, anti-dating, this concept of, um, there was a book called uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye that was published by a man named, well, a young man named Joshua Harris. And so there was this overarching concept of sex is something that you have when you're married. Dating is sinful because it could lead to premarital sex. So you should be courting, meaning any relationship that you have should have a keen eye keen eye towards marriage. Um, any relationship that doesn't end in marriage is kind of a failed relationship, meaning you better get it right from the start yeah. or else there's something wrong with you, right? Your picker is wrong. Um, so, okay. so all of those kind of that zeitgeist of fundamentalism really baked into, I think, a very problematic worldview for me. I've known since I was eight that I liked girls and had crushes on girls. Um, when I was 13, I remember sitting in a bunk in church camp, um, going through this like Bible study worksheet workbook. And it said, you know, check the boxes of all the ways that you've sinned in your heart. And one of them was like, you, you're attracted to, to people of your own sex. You know, I don't even think the concept of gender <laughs> kind of migrated into this founding fundamentalist movement. Um, you know, and so, so I remember looking at that um, worksheet and I was 13, like I, I, like talking about, it, I can put myself back in that bunk bed, like sitting, looking at that worksheet. And I was just like, I'm making a choice. This is not part of my life. This is not something that I am. 
This is like this, this door is closed. So like you cut part of yourself off. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so started getting into really, um, tumultuous relationships with, um, with boys, you know, I, I'm not saying men on purpose because I was, you know, 15, 16. And, um, in addition to the church kind of indoctrination, uh, where I grew up in Southern Ohio, there was abstinence only education. And that was, you know, in, in parts of the country now that's still considered acceptable. So there was no conversation of consent, no discussions of kind of healthy boundaries and relationships, how to talk about sex, because sex was something that you just don't have. And so the first time that I had quote unquote sex, right, I, I don't think of it as sex because it was non-consensual. The first time that I had intercourse, it was non-consensual because I didn't have the language to say, these are the things that I'm comfortable with. These are the things that I'm not. And after that experience, I was still surrounded by all of this abstinence only malarkey and didn't really have anyone to go to in my, tr- my like tribe to say, you know, no adults to go to and be like, this, this just happened to me. And I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know what to do about it because everyone around me said, if you're not a virgin, you're going to hell. And so I carried this very deep wound with me. I stayed in that relationship for nine months, being abused, being assaulted, um, you know, locking my doors because he would come bang on the windows and like scream. You had told me you were 15. How old was he? 16, 16. Okay. And was he part, he was part of your church? He was not. Um, although he, he came to a lot of youth group stuff with me, like Christian rock festivals, like Ichthus and, um, you know, to some extent he was, he was a victim as well, right? Like none of these are conversations that people were being raised with if they were in these kind of more conservative circles. And so, you, you know, your original question was what, what kind of values inform who you are now? Um, any, <laughs> I am an ardent feminist. <laughs> I, have, I have raised my son from day one. He has, he, you know, anytime I say no, it's followed with like, no means no. Like if he asks again, I'm like, no, (laughs) you know, like there, there's no conversations. He's about to turn eight. Um, He has an older stepbrother who's, uh, you know, through no fault of his own, like exposed, he's being exposed to a lot of older kid concepts through kids on the bus and through his, his stepbrother, who's who's very sweet kid. Um, You know, so even with my my eight year old, we're having lots of conversations about sex and about consent. <laughs> well, you I'm- know, when you start early, it makes it like it's just a natural conversation, just as if you would have a conversation about anything else. So then it's it becomes okay to talk about it. Yeah, and 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 talk about it. He does, man. <laughs> you know, like he's, <laughs> he's got all sorts of questions, and you know. It makes me really, I just have like a profound sense of gratitude because he, he understands on a fundamental level, like he doesn't get a lot of things, but that, that we don't touch other people's bodies without asking, you know, and, and, and he, when he has impulse control issues around that, there's conversations that specifically talk about consent, right? Where we're, we're sitting him down, me, his, his stepmom and his dad, we're sitting him down and saying, you know, this is why we don't touch people's bodies. This is how... We treat people with respect. And so, um, you know, right now we're going through, I think, as a nation, a a very pointed moment around women's bodies and consent. And for me, I I no longer engage in political discussions. Um, I used to be a political advocate. I ran nonprofits that were advocacy focused. Um, And the conclusion that I've come come to at this moment in my life is my 
my work is really to heal individual hearts so that they can go do the work that they're here to do as opposed to scream on the steps of the state house of maryland (laughs) yeah 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 it's so interesting how you know these things that you talked about how you were raised the beliefs the values that were instilled in you that are seemingly negative didn't you know contributed in um to some what's the word i'm looking for some experiences that you maybe wouldn't have wanted to go through are now informing how you're raising your child in a positive way. Yeah. Well, I think there was a positive impact even before that. You know, one of the defining characteristics that makes me me is a capability to pivot quite quickly from shitty thing that happened into good thing that I can use, like, build service from. So when I was doing my PhD, I founded with a colleague, um, the center for the study of gender and conflict at the Carter school of peace building at George Mason, um, that became, you know, an international research center that drew students and, and scholars from around the world to collaborate on different aspects of gender-based violence research. Um, I got to that, you know, I've, I've published that work, uh, some of my own work from studying in Moscow and Cambodia and Indonesia, looking at policies around safety and gender-based violence. So I think when we give ourselves permission to say, I'm going to go into my own pain really deeply and investigate what, like, what gems are among the shit so that I can take them and, and do something with them as opposed to just kind of carry this tucked away in my heart, never to be seen again. Uh, there's there's so much richness to be gained in that inquiry process. Yeah, talk. I'm glad you brought that up. Talk a little bit about that journey because I'm curious. How did you go from uh, where you you know as this young adult in this situation, toxic situation, to someone who's starting you know a program on um, trauma and gender based. Uh, discrimination, stu- you know, study yeah, about yeah. that. You know, less, less approach, you know, it was a, a it was a think, t- you know, it was, a, we called it a think tank slash do tank, right? It was an international research center. So, you know, we had programming, um, but it was an institution. Um, so, okay. Uh, the journey there, I, after, after I was assaulted and then stayed in that relationship, uh, I gained a lot of weight very quickly um, to, pad myself from being sure as a protective measure right exactly um and i don't think i had a clear idea that my desire to get out of ohio which is where i grew up was driven by a desire to get away from the culture of ohio um to some extent perhaps yeah <laughs> I don't know, but the, the second <laughs> in I, hindsight, yeah. So I, I turned eighteen on September thirtieth, and on January fifteenth ish. So like, what is that? Like ten weeks later, three months. Yeah, yeah, you know, not even. I I was in my car on my way to Orlando to do the Walt Disney World College program. I was like, I'm out of here, you know, peeling rubber, <laughs> like going, yeah. going somewhere bigger. Um, I I had this. This thing that I would tell to people as I was talking about, you know, I want to I want to move to Washington, D.C. I want to do the Disney College program. I want to be somewhere bigger than this. I kept saying I want to go where everyone is different. So no one is different. Just this like fundamental concept of diversity in every sense of the word where different languages, different races, different cultures, different viewpoints. um, There was just this like deep yearning desire 
within me and I think a knowing that the second I got around people that weren't all the same, I would find a sense of being okay with myself. How did you know those people existed or that those places existed? Yeah. Uh, my, well, my mom grew up in New York um, and I don't think ever considered herself someone to be from Ohio. Um, and hmm, I don't know. We didn't really travel a ton. We went to Walt Disney World a lot. I, I was just a big reader. Um, I was a big reader and believed fundamentally that there were places where it was cool to be smart. And that was certainly not my experience. There was a, a beautiful woman that that now also lives in Washington, D.C., also has a Ph.D. Uh, she was in, in my class, you know, my graduating class. She ended up leaving our school district in ninth grade, I believe, eighth or ninth grade. She won a, a distinction from the president for her test scores on some sort of nationalized, standardized test. And they threw an assembly for her because this was such a big deal, you know, nationally recognized as someone who had academic talent. And in the back of the auditorium, there were a couple of um, a couple of asshole kids whose whose names I'd really like to drop here, but I'm choosing not to. Uh, <laughs> they probably uh, don't listen. <laughs> who, who sat who sat in the back of the auditorium and went loser loser. And, and the, you know, like kids are assholes everywhere, but the administration didn't shut them down. And there was an, an element of, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod towards people being absolute fucking dicks, like specifically around women and education and excellence and things like that. And so this woman's, uh, you know, at the time, a girl, um, her, her mom pulled up and Took her, you know, de-enrolled her, what's it called? Took her out of the school system. Unenrolled? Yeah. Unenrolled, disenrolled something. She took her out, right? And and put her in private school because, oh my God, are you kidding me? Um, right, it was, right. It was such a, a fundamental, like, sense of we don't have to care about being intelligent and people that are like that, you know, like are losers, right? Like this element of like, not even, you know, like nerds do nerd things, but that the people who are wildly intelligent, that's some sort of mark against them as opposed to like, thank God we have clean drinking water and like bridges that work because people are, you know, environmental scientists and engineers. Okay. So you got out and got out, went to greener pastures Greener pastures, yes. Yeah, I went. I went to American University for undergrad, and all of a sudden, I was. Yeah, so do I. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot we were both alumni. <laughs> so, right. so no, right? Like, there's a very distinct flavor of like activism laden, nerdy, smart, committed to changing things, right? And definitely, right, and definitely a culture of diversity. Yes, all kinds of people from different nationalities, different different everything. I mean, anything you want to find, you can find there. Yep. Absolutely. It was so liberating. And it's funny, after I finished my PhD, I taught at both GW, I taught at the Elliott School of International Affairs, and I taught at American University School of International Service. And, you know, both of these schools draw cream of the crop students, right? They're so smart, so funny, so driven. There is a absolute distinct flavor of student at American University that they're just like, we're going to found NGOs, we're going to change the world, 
everything is going to be different because I'm going to step up to the plate and make a difference. And it was such a fun environment to be around as a professor um, and and just like see these, um, you know, these young people just like wildly bright eyed and bushy tailed and like ready to go. And, and it was really fun to be reminded of of just where I had been at that, you know, 20 years earlier phase of my life. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. So, so where was the point where everything was fine, but not fine? Fine, but not fine. Um, hmm. Was that, was that when you, you know, before you left Ohio, is that where you would consider that fine piece or was there later? Um, so all like the, I'm going to give the, I'm not going to give the, all of the details answer because it, you know, my, my ex-husband is involved in the stories. And so I'll just say my, my marriage turned very rocky when right after we had a miscarriage. So we, we had one child in 2014 and then in 2017, we lost a baby and it was, and continues to be devastating for, for both of us. Um, it's still a thing that has influenced, I think a lot of who we are. Um, so, but after that, our our marriage that had been rocky for quite some time became really combative and just un, untenable. And after kind of a final blowout fight, I just like I drew I felt so strongly the presence of a divine and a guiding spirit. Despite my awful experiences in the church growing up, I have a very close relationship with higher power. I'm in recovery. And, um, you know, from the age of 22, God has been a big part of my life. And I just felt in the midst of that blowout fight, just very, very, very clear that the path I was on was not the path that I was supposed to be on, that all of the love in my heart that I had was being poured into something that was no longer functional. And I made a decision, you know, after after three years of mulling about what to do um, in that moment, you know, just felt a profound sense of clarity and peace. And that was a Thursday and on Monday I left and it was really hard, but it also, you know, fine, but not fine. We had matching BMW convertibles, uh, Mini Coopers, uh, matching Mini Cooper convertibles. We had a beautiful 1851 row home that I had restored. I general contracted the renovation and had won a historic architecture preservation award for. We had a beautiful child. Um, you know, my my now ex-husband owned and continues to own his own law firm. Um, I was the executive director of a nonprofit uh, membership organization of 5,000 people. So on the outside, right, like we have, you know, he owns a law firm. I run a prestigious organization. We have, you know, beautiful cars. We have a beautiful child. We have a beautiful house. We have all the things, but the, the foundational structure of that had eroded. And so, you know, the kind of fine, but not fine, I would say that was the, the beginning of the end. And then the end of the end, <laughs> the end of the beginning of the end, I don't know, the, the, there's a line in the big book, which is the kind of like foundational text of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's this line that says, um, you know, we, we walked through, I'm butch, butchering it. Somebody's going to correct me here. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, you know, but it was like, it, like we walked through the, the, the archway towards freedom. And, and that moment where I felt like I, I really was walking through the archway towards, towards a new life was I was, um, still very early in the divorce process. I think we'd probably been separated maybe three weeks, maybe. 
And I was at a casino restaurant opening in downtown Baltimore at the Horseshoe Casino. And I was running um, an educational equity nonprofit. And the casino had been built with taxpayer dollars based on the premise that the the part of the proceeds would go back into education. And of course they hadn't. And so now we're advocating to like fix this loophole that this slimy organization had brokered. And um, so I'm going to this place with a donor who I'm courting the donor to give me a donation. So I'm going to a place that I'm advocating against at a state level, but I'm going to go there dressed up and pretend that I'm okay with it. And the mayor is going to be there. And the mayor, Mayor Catherine Pugh, who later went to jail for corruption, mayor is someone that I believe vehemently is terrible at her job and doing a bad job for the city. So now I'm, I'm with a, a donor who's wonderful um, in a casino that I'm fighting against with a mayor that I believe is fundamentally corrupt. And the donor um, is talking to me about how to pour the perfect Kier Royale, like this cocktail. And so I'm sitting here nodding along and smiling. Meanwhile, I've been... <laughs> There's everything wrong with this situation. So, so my last drink had been in, uh, thank you God, you know, had been in August 2006, continues to have been in August 26, 2006. So, so I haven't had a drink since August 2006. I'm here trying to play nice with a donor who's explaining to me how to have the perfect cocktail. And I'm nodding along and saying, oh my gosh, that sounds delicious. Doesn't sound delicious. Sounds like poison. <laughs> like, like I'm going like, to drink that. So, so I'm doing that. And then here comes the mayor, um, may she rot in peace. And so she (laughs) kind of like stumbles over to us and she walks like a bird. And so she comes over to us and she goes, Oh, it's so nice to see you. And the donor and I like, like turn to each other and we're like, Oh my God, I hate her. And then she, here she comes, Mayor Pugh. And we go, Oh my gosh, so nice to see you. How are you, Elizabeth? How are you donor? And, and I'm just like here being fake to a donor, being fake to the mayor in a building built like on a premise that I find wholly irresponsible, that I think is exploitative. Um, and I, at that moment, my a friend from grad school had moved in with me for a little while to help me just through the transition of this early divorce. And she texts me and my geriatric Labrador had peed on her bed. And I just had this moment where um, Mormons who leave the church, they call it the shelf broke, right? All these little things that they're not with that they just mentally like put on a shelf, like the shelf eventually breaks, like the shelf broke. I was like, you know what? Like I, like I'm being fake with the alcohol. I'm being fake with the fun, you know, like I'm being fake to the mayor's face. Like I fundamentally disagree with this building and everything it stands for. And now my, you know, 14 year old Labrador is peeing on somebody's bed. I just can't. And, uh, and then the organization was going through financial struggle and, and it was really a question mark as to whether or not we'd make salary over the next couple of weeks. And I just, the next day I was like, I can't, I can't. I went to the board and I was like, I, I, there's no money. <laughs> like, there's no, you know, I, I don't have the capacity to do this. And I, I, I don't know what to do because, I don't see a solution financially. I, you know, like, like I, I am not in a place in my life where I can be the person that solves this problem. And it was so difficult to admit to people I really respected, you know, that, that I'm over my head. I, I'm not like, I can't raise money right now. Like I, like I'm fundamentally like not in a position to solve a very real problem that this organization has that you know, like, I just, I, I can't, I can't. And, 
I think for high performers, we have a very real tendency to believe that if we step aside from the things that are no longer tenable, that like the whole world will end. Um, and like, you know, my, my world changed profoundly, but it didn't end. That's a really heavy burden to carry, to think that the success of an entire organization is dependent on one person or the success of any... Right. But I'm saying you, you mentioned so how high achievers think that yes. and right. We carry this and yet it is not true. So it's a story that yeah. people tell themselves that they are so necessary and not from an egotistical place necessarily. No. It's from a, I truly believe that I, what I'm doing is so important that I'm afraid that things, right. We carry this burden and, yeah, I, um, and you know, my, you my stepped aside made, and the organization lived, didn't it? it? It lived. It continues to do great work. They've implemented some changes that I had really hoped would come to fruition. And, you know, they, they continue to do great work. And, and you know, that was always going to be the case because there were always talented and invested people involved. I think the challenge when, when we think about leaders, which is who I work with now, you know, I work with leaders, um, we get into this place where we believe so thoroughly in the mission that we tend to expend our energy in ways that actually aren't necessarily helpful to moving the needle. Um, we just spin our wheels hoping that the energy and momentum is eventually going to overcome fundamental structural issues. And if you can't step away and say, okay, where am I contributing to the problem here? And how do I bring in outsider perspective to help identify, you know, the things that I don't know that I don't know. When, when you have humility and grace and, and coaches available to you that can help you do that, I think things can change pretty quickly. And I I had an executive coach at the time, and I think that made a huge difference as to whether or not I was able to step aside as gracefully as possible and, and you know, just say, I, I'm over my head here. So one of the things that we had talked about in our conversation before we started recording was this, this intersection between high achievers and addiction. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm wondering if you could address that for a moment and then I have another question that has been floating through my head since since a few minutes ago. Okay, cool. But, but so, let's do this one first. Sounds good. There, there's a big overlap between addicts and addiction and high performers. Many, many high performers have addictive personalities. It's one of the things that I think... And, and I'm sorry, I don't have statistics. <laughs> um, but, but it's We don't need statistics. Who cares? I, I'm, I'm I'm a qualitative researcher, not a qualitative 99.5% of statistics are made up anyway. There you go. That's what Abraham Lincoln <laughs> said on the internet. Um, That's right. So the fundamental driving characteristic of an addict right, is, is that they want more. They want more drugs, more, more sex. They want more food. They want more attention. They want more love. They want more cocaine, what, whatever it is. Oftentimes when someone gets into recovery and they put down, uh, you know, for me, sugar and flour, that was my first entree into the 12 step world. I put down sugar and flour and all of a sudden my spending got really out of control, right? Like I was mm. buying things and cause I was still looking for that high, right? That dope it, It's like that whack-a-mole thing. 
Where you exactly. beat down one mole and another one pops up. Yeah. That is that is the metaphor that I use. Exactly. It's whack-a-mole. Because what, what your brain is trying to do, right? Addiction, addiction is not I'm addicted to X substance or X behavior. It is a it is a, a pattern of how your brain is wired, right? It's seeking a dopamine hit. And in the 12-step world, we often talk about this as like a God-shaped hole. Like we're trying to fill something that only a spiritual connection can fill. But from a brain standpoint, right, it's it's that your, your brain is looking for a hit. It's looking for a high. And so for a lot of overachievers, for a lot of driven people, for a lot of leaders, that hit and that high can come from performance and it can come from achievement and it can come from accolades and it can come from achieving big goals, right? So if you've been, uh, I'll use my dad as an example. He worked for General Electric for many, many years and he talked about a project um, and he's going to listen to this and be like, no, he got the something wrong. But he talked about this <laughs> massive project of, of bringing electricity into an underdeveloped area. And they'd been working on it for you know a really, really, really long time. And, and they flipped the switch and all of a sudden there's electricity. And he said, I, I fell to my knees on the ground, overwhelmed with the emotion of seeing this thing come to life and the magnitude of how people's lives were going to change because of what we had done. Right. And that sort of validation and, and joy and, and satisfaction and just like, oh man, I can't believe we did it, right? Like that, that's intoxicating. And so people that have addictive personalities will chase that high in different ways, right? We'll work 20 hours eating Chinese food and, you know, like take out and whatnot while we work to get a brief done and then we turn in the thing and then we feel good about ourselves, but then we've got to be on to the next thing, Right. One of my clients, we talk about like achievement was her love language, right? Where it was like, she'd she'd do the thing. Right. Because your belief is that simply being is not enough. Mm -hmm. Your, Your value is based on achievement. Exactly. Exactly. You're only worthy... So, so there's, there's the belief system and then there's the brain chemistry. The belief is I'm only good enough if someone is externally validating me. The brain chemistry is when I'm externally validated, I get a dopamine hit. And so we can talk as a field all we want about mindset and limiting beliefs and blah, 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 blah. But when we allow ourselves to become curious about what the, the brain structural aspects of that are, we're able to do much more powerful work. I want to then pivot us into speaking a bit about mental health writ large here, because I think that it's really important for practitioners like me who are coaches um, to understand that there, there are there are moments where you need to have the humility and grace to recognize that you're out ahead of your skis. Um, when I have a client and I'm three sessions in and I'm not seeing movement and I'm starting to see patterns of behavior differently than they presented in a discovery call, I, I hit pause, not on our work together, but that session then becomes about finding a practitioner that can do some screening work with them, a psychiatrist that can jump in and be, you know, on the team so that we're moving forward in a way where we're addressing whatever underlying issues there are. And I think we can get tripped up, especially I'm going to go even further <laughs> with the coaching, you know, not just as mindset coaches, but when we get into kind of the spiritual woo-woo coaching where people are like, you know, I'm drawing from the Akashic records and blah, 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 which uh, all I'm down with all of it. That's fine. 
we can get into this very shamey, ill-informed place we're like, well, you know, if you just ground deeper into the truth of who you are, then this won't be a thing. And, um, you know, I'm pretty deeply grounded into the truth of who I am. But I also have bipolar disorder, which I address as a medical condition. It's more deadly than breast cancer and testicular cancer combined. And so I don't fuck around with it, <laughs> you know? Right. And I, wow. I spiritual healers and teachers yeah. and mindset coaches and all of that. And I also work closely with a medical team. Right. I love that you're saying this because it isn't one size fits all or one method of, of, um, development, self-development fits all. It's a combination. It's finding what works for you as an individual and then potentially it's not just that one thing. It's this combination like you're talking about. It should be a well-balanced diet. You know, I think the thing that changed my life the most was when I stopped seeing my work and my achievements as the thing, as like, this is the most important thing. When I look at my calendar, the most important thing that I do is I go to work and I do the things. And I started to say, when I look at my calendar, the most important thing is my spiritual development, my mental health and my pursuit of joy, right? So whether that's taking a walk, going for a bike ride, my, my, you know, I live on an island in the Chesapeake Bay, so we go fishing a lot, uh, we go boating, and work is so, you know, like, I, those moments of, like, on-your-knees joy that my, I, you know, spoke about with my father, I get to have at least once a month a feeling like that. I get to work with incredible people who make incredible strides, who, you know, come to me feeling very rudderless as far as their direction. And to see people move in a direction of understanding that they can have whatever they want, whenever they want it, because they're worthy of it. Um, you know, at least once a, once a month, I'm in tears during a session, you know, just kind of like holding space and witnessing someone grow. That is not the thing that gives me the most joy, though. And, and I think before I had that shelf breaking moment, if you had asked like, what's, what's the, what's the thing that's the biggest priority in your life? I would have said, you know, my son. And then I would follow that with, you know, the work that I do. And now I would say like the work that I do is a huge source of joy. It's a reason that I'm on the planet. But when I look at my calendar, it's not the most time consuming thing. You know, it's, it's scattered within going on dates with cute people and, you know, all sorts of fun stuff with my son and going to the water every morning. I make coffee and then go to the water, you know, and, and just kind of hang out yeah. with the universe and, and, you know. Enjoying the beauty of the universe. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Okay. I have my one final question, but before I ask you that question, I have to ask this because it's been on my mind because at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about being shamed or feeling... Um, feeling shame around the whole idea of liking girls. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned being married to a man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you broke out of the, uh, the, the closed mindedness of Ohio and came to diversity and that like, I'm, I'm confused. That's all. I, I feel like I have to ask that question of no, that's, how, that's how totally that happened. That's totally fair. So I'm bisexual. Um, for a after my marriage ended, um, and 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 me being bisexual played a fairly significant role in my marriage ending. Um, I'll kind of leave it at that. 
after my marriage ended, I got into another relationship with a man, but we walked in the doors of that relationship with the clarity that I'm bisexual and that's a non-negotiable aspect of who I am. And, uh, and that's not to say my ex-husband is not tremendously supportive. He is. Um, and so, so in the context of that next relationship, um, that person really created a lot of structure for me to grow in my own understanding of who I was sexually. And that was really healing and powerful. And after I re- ended that relationship, um, I, I thought I was, was a lesbian. I um, came out of the relationship and I did a lot of prayer and soul searching and sat on a lot of girlfriend's you know, girlfriend in the platonic sense, uh, floors of their living room crying and saying, you know, I think I'm gay and, and I don't know what to do. And, um, and I eventually came out, I, I came out as a lesbian and, um, stayed single on purpose for about a year. And then when I started dating again, I, you know, I'm ready to date and ready to meet my person and all of that. Um, I realized I was still attracted to men. <laughs> so, so, so I kind of walked it back and I was like, you know what? Still bisexual, turns out. Okay. Uh, no, all good. <laughs> I just felt like there was that question. And if I had that question, then my listeners are going to have that question. I had to ask you. Yeah, of course. Well, I just want to say, you know, to anyone listening to this that, that grew up in kind of a conservative culture and is still deprogramming from that or, or hasn't even considered the possibility of deprogramming from that, um, you know, it's a spectrum and it's fine. You know, come out of the closet, go back, you know, go back to recognizing you're bisexual. At the end of the day, um, you know, your sexuality is the business of you and the person you're in a relationship with. And um, even then, it's not really their business beyond how they're going to support you. And so I think, you know, after I came out um, as a lesbian and then kind of had a like moment of revision, I spent a lot of time talking to my friends that were gay and um, or continue to be gay. My friends that are lesbians, my friends that are gay. And every single one of them was just like, this is a thing that is a spectrum. And, you know, like one day what feels true might not feel true the next day. And that doesn't make the statement that you proclaimed any less valid. And so I think there's been different seasons and different flavors of who I'm always attracted to categorically. And, you know, and it's all fine. Yeah. I mean, life overall is very fluid. And that's what we need to accept and recognize circling back to the whole basis of this conversation of diversity and acceptance of, yep. of all different kinds. Yeah, and that, that again, we are not one thing all the time. Yeah, no, but I, you know, I, I absolutely went into that straight marriage in part to, I don't want to say, um, atone for the fact that I had feelings towards women, but, um, it was kind of like now, now I'm legit. I got married. See, I got married. And therefore, you know, and, and there was no one I was proving that to except myself. Um, but I, I definitely felt a huge kind of societal pressure to get married. But that was less to do with my sexuality and more to do with my legitimacy as a woman. You know, like I, you're a real, like, like a man wants you and therefore you're worthy. And, we, you know, like basic kind of like Judith Buff- Butler, you know, third wave feminism through the male gaze, you know, like I am now enough because a dude put a ring on it and now I'm ready to roll. <laughs> and um, right. so kind of like taking myself off that con- conveyor belt and being like, mm, never mind. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. So this conversation has been all over the place and (laughs) all good stuff. Thank you so much. Now it comes to the last question of what is the song that you listen to when you need to get a boost of energy? Ah, What is your hype song? Yeah. Mama Cass, play it, make your own kind of music. 24 seven, man. Love it. All right. We will put a link to that in the show notes if people want to listen and how can they find you if they want to continue this conversation with you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the quickest way is to send me a DM and I'm on Instagram as soul S O U L period, Dr. D R period, Liz L I Z. You can go to my website, souldrliz.com, no periods in between. Or you can find me on Facebook, which is where I put most of my content. Um, It's just Elizabeth and then my middle name, D-E-G-I, and my last name, Dubois, D-U-B-O-I-S. You can find me in all those places. Cool. And I will put links to those places in the show notes as well. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Liz Dubois. On fine is a four-letter word. Thank you for having me. Wow. Okay. That conversation was all over the map on topics. All good stuff though. Here are a few key takeaways. Number one, high performers have a tendency to believe so thoroughly in the mission of their organization that they expend energy in ways that aren't actually helpful to moving the needle. You can end up spinning your wheels, hoping energy and momentum will eventually overcome fundamental structural issues. What is more useful is stepping away and asking, Where am I contributing to the problem here? And possibly bringing in an outside perspective to help you see what you can't see. Number two, the fundamental driving characteristic of an addict is that they want more. More drugs, more sex, more food, more attention, more love, whatever it is. This drive for dopamine also applies to high achievers. A lot of leaders get a high from performance or accolades or achieving big goals, and then they feel good about themselves for a minute before they have to move on to the next thing. Notice if achievement is your love language. If you feel I'm only good enough if someone is externally validating me. Number three, when we give ourselves permission to say, I'm going to go into my own pain really deeply and investigate what the gems are among the shit so that I can take them and do something with them as opposed to just kind of carrying this tucked away in my heart never to be seen again. There's so much richness to be gained in that inquiry process. Number four, look at your calendar. Is it filled with the fun stuff that delivers the bring you to your knees joy? If it's not, consider how you might rearrange it. And number five, the overall theme of this show is one of diversity and acceptance within and for yourself, as well as for others. Society tries to make us believe it's all or nothing, one way or another, pick a side, but life is fluid. Allow yourself the ability to see and the opportunity to explore and understand the shades of gray. Thanks for being here and subscribing to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. Please share this show with a friend or a colleague. If you're feeling especially generous, leave a review so other people like you can discover the show too. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and all the major podcast directories. You can join me on social too. On Instagram, it's zen underscore rabbit. 
You can find links to the other platforms at zenrabbit.com. Before you go, remember to take a moment to think about what you're grateful for today. Lastly, you can find this week's meditation queued up right after this episode. And if no one's told you this week, I'm proud of you. Take good care.